0: Well, church, um, we continue today in our series in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 35, Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 35, and due to the time of the hour, uh, I'm going to hustle this morning, I'm going to read quickly, Uh, so if you'll find your way in God's Word to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, beginning in verse 35, Mark chapter 1, verse 35. In a message I've titled, Pursuing the Father's Mission. Pursuing the Father's Mission. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for Him. They found Him and said to Him, everyone is looking for you. He said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for And he went into their synagogues and throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed and he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away and he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter the city but stayed out in unpopulated areas and they were coming to him. From everywhere. Our choir just saying how great thou art and let us to worship Him. Why don't we go to the Lord, our great God, and ask Him to bless and guide us as we consider His Word this morning? God, you are great and you are greatly to be praised. And we see in this text your desire to go on mission to those who are broken by the most despicable and disgusting of diseases. And God, not just physical malady, but God, You've come to rescue us from the disease of the heart, from the disease of sin. And so we pray that we would behold afresh this morning Your greatness and Your great Gospel and Your great mission. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. At this point in Mark's Gospel, Jesus has called out the four disciples out of the boat. He's demonstrated... Superior authority over other religious authorities, over demonic forces, and over sickness. Mark has been showing us that the time of waiting for Isaiah's promised restoration has been completed. When Jesus comes, the kingdom comes near. The righteousness of God comes near. God's reign had drawn near in Jesus' preaching. But the good news of the kingdom should not stop just in one town it can't just stop and stay bottled up in Capernaum. As Aiken writes, there's more to be done to enable the kingdom to advance against the powers of darkness and evil. In this text, Jesus shows us the strategy by which God continues to advance His purposes. I coached an upward basketball team last year. I don't know if I'm going to have time to do it this year, but it was a fantastic experience, but one of the challenges is that I was reminded of what I must have been like when I was a seven, eight, nine-year-old boy coming to basketball practice. Because when you go to basketball practice at six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, you're not an expert yet, but you think that you are. And when you show up to basketball practice, all you want to do is shoot the ball, or show off your new dribble between your legs, or whatever play it is that you think is cool, that's what you want to come and do. You don't want to come and stand in a line and do dribble drills. You don't want to learn how to do the weave from baseline to baseline, passing it back and forth to the players without ever letting the ball touch the ground. You don't want to work on the fundamentals and then put together a strategy to actually win a game. You just want to hang out for an hour and do whatever you want to do with the basketball. And that's a lot like the church. Right? God's given us a mission and He's given us a strategy and we get into the life of the church and we've got our little ministry, our little project, our little thing that we like to do and we like to show up in church and be like, church is really all about me and what makes me comfortable and I just want to do my thing and don't bother me. And we never get on the same page and build a strategy to see God's mission go forward in the world. Are you all here this morning? Is this all? So Jesus gives us the strategy. Here it is. If we're going to pursue God's mission in the world, we must commune with the Father in prayer. Can't skip prayer. So easy to skip prayer, but we can't skip it. See, if we skip prayer, it's our work, not God's work. And then it doesn't work. Secondly, we must maintain our focus on the proclamation of the gospel. And thirdly, we must expect Jesus to cleanse those who humbly ask Him to do so. We concluded last week's message with Jesus healing well into the evening. Do you remember that? He, he works all day. He teaches all day. Then Sabbath is over in the evening and people start coming to Peter's house and he's healing. We don't know how late he heals, but I don't know about you. If I was Jesus, I'd probably want to sleep in the next day, but not Jesus. Instead, he rises early to pray. We don't know. What Jesus prays, that's not Mark's point. It's only that He prays. He communes with His Father. He makes a time for prayer. He rises early. We don't mean 8 a.m. early. We mean super early while it's still dark early. And there's only two reasons in life why anybody would get up that early. One is to pray, and the other is to go play golf. Whichever your reason, that's it. Otherwise, it's okay to sleep late. All right. Jesus has every excuse to skip the priority of prayer. He's likely tired, and oh, by the way, He's also God in the flesh. If anybody could get away with not praying, it would be Jesus. And yet, early in the morning, He gets up to commune with His Father about the mission. Why does He do that? He's showing us that God's mission flows from communion with the Heavenly Father, that the work of God must flow from intimacy with God. Prayer always must precede proclamation. One of the things I ask you to do, and I hope you do, is before you come and hear the gospel proclaimed, I pray that you pray for the preacher. That that as the gospel goes out, that as there's hearts who are here this morning who need to be challenged and informed and shaped and maybe even drawn to salvation by the gospel, or at least sanctified by the gospel, that the gospel would have its work. That I'm not the only one praying for the preaching. I hope you're praying for the preaching as well. When God empowers us, for the pro- he empowers us for the proclamation of the gospel when we meet with Him in prayer. Our lives are not about what we do unless they are first about whose we are. Jesus never leaves behind His identity. He is the Son of the Father on a mission from the Father to be fulfilled in the Spirit's power. So Jesus makes a time for prayer, but He also makes a place for prayer. Do you notice where He goes? to a secluded place. The word secluded place is the same word for wilderness. It's where John was preaching. It's where Jesus was baptized. It's where Jesus overcame Satan in the wilderness. And He goes back to the place where He's already proven who He is and the power that He has by communion with the Father. And He goes there and communes with the Father again. Because the mission into the world of wilderness and darkness and heartache and sin is a It's a dangerous and hard mission that requires communion with the Father. We've got to understand this as a church. If we could do the work without relying on God, it would not be God's work. So before Jesus ever goes out to preach in verse 38, He goes away to pray in verse 35. And He finds strength in the solitude of prayer and intimate fellowship with His Father. And He does this to show us that that is what we also can do as we pursue God's mission in the world. Mark records three prayers of Jesus in his gospel. And all three are related to threats to Jesus fulfilling his mission in the world. In this case, Jesus could have just stayed in Capernaum. Had a lot of friends. Worked a lot of miracles. But he didn't do that. He went out to pray and then the disciples come and they try to bring him back to where he was. But Jesus had a wider mission in the world. After feeding the 5,000, the people come to Him and say, we want to make you king. Of course, He already was king. He didn't need to be made king. But they wanted a political kingdom right then and right now. But He couldn't be recognized as king until He defeated death on the cross. And so the mission must continue. And so He prays. Finally, as He stares down the cross and sweats drops of blood in Gethsemane, Weighing the terrors of the cross, he again goes to the Father in prayer. Every single time that Jesus prays, he goes when he has an opportunity to take the easy road. He could have been a local miracle working hero in Capernaum and had everything he wanted, but instead, he takes the hard road of the Father's mission. He could have been recognized as the political king that he actually is and gone ahead and set up the kingdom. But the cross needed to come so that Satan and sin could be vanquished. And so he goes and prays. He, he could have said, I, I don't want to do the cross. But he said, says instead, not my will, God, but Your will be done. In prayer, we are filled with the purposes of God. We're so filled with the purposes of God that we're freed to abandon our agenda for God's agenda. God opens up our eyes and our hearts to to His mission, and He gives us His strength to do whatever it takes so that His kingdom may come on earth as it is in heaven. If we're going to pursue the mission of God, it must begin with prayer. And as we emerge from our praying, there's a danger here, right? Some of us get so excited about prayer that if we just pray... 24 hours a day, that's all we need. No, there's got to be proclamation too. At some point, you've got to emerge from the praying and and begin to do the proclaiming. So, we must maintain our focus on the proclamation of the gospel. Just because we pursue intimacy with God in prayer doesn't mean distractions aren't going to come. Some of you get distracted when you pray. Well, I don't know if Jesus is done praying or if He's just finished or what, but here come the disciples led by Simon and they're on a search for Jesus. Do you see that in verse 36? And then they tell Him, everyone is looking for you in verse 37. You ever felt like that? You're finally moving with God. He's got something for you. And then everybody in the world's got a reason to peel you off of what God's doing in your life. The word search and looking for They're not neutral words. They're actually negative words in Mark's Gospel. The word search means to hunt down like prey. His disciples are hunting for Him like prey. And then they say to Him, everybody's looking for you. And the word looking for in the Greek is also negative. It's used ten times in Mark. Most of the times that it's used, it's when people are looking to take Jesus in order to kill Him. You don't necessarily pick up the negative connotation when you read it in the English translation, but here's what Mark is saying. Though the disciples may not realize it, they are threatening to kill God's mission in the world for their individual ministry. Just come on back to Capernaum and hang out with us and work some more miracles and we'll have it easy. Aiken summarizes the Disciples' thoughts with these words. What are you doing here, Jesus? This isn't where you should be. You need to be with the crowds. We're building a following. Things are beginning to happen. You don't have time to be alone in prayer. What does Jesus say? Verse 38. You know what? Why don't we go somewhere else? Not to Capernaum. Let's just go find another town. Why? So that I may preach or proclaim or herald the good news of the kingdom there also, because that is why I came, and that is what I'm going to do. I'm going to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Jesus refuses to restrict His worldwide mission for the ministry needs of the present. This is critical, because it happens in churches after churches after churches that end up dying. They become so ministry focused, not that ministry is bad, but they become so focused on their own needs and ministry that they forsake the mission of God and slowly but surely they die. And then they wake up one day and everybody's 65, 70, 80 years or older and they say, Where are all the people? You cannot abandon the mission of God for the ministry needs of the present. Y'all are here this morning, right? There's going to be ministry needs wherever Jesus goes. But the Gospel must be proclaimed in new places and among new people or the mission will stall. So Jesus stays on Gospel advance proclaiming the Gospel in synagogues, putting demons on the run throughout all Galilee. We can't overstate how important the proclamation of the Gospel is. Achan puts it this way, God had only one Son and He made Him a preacher. No pastor is worthy of the office who does not preach the Word. No church will prosper spiritually without the preaching of the Word. Martin Luther said it this way, Let us consider it certain and conclusively established that the soul can do without everything else except the Word of God, and that where this is not, there is no help for the soul anything, in anything else whatsoever." In other words, it is impossible to care for souls and to neglect the preaching of the gospel. We must not be like the crowds, holding Jesus back for ourselves and our ministries, Rather, we must pursue the deep, abiding, life-changing healing that comes through the proclamation of the, of the Gospel to the darkness of our lives and to the lives of those all around. Jesus, you want to know where Jesus is? He's on mission. He's on mission in new places, and new territories. And the question I have for you this morning is, where is God sending you with the Gospel? In the next month, in the next week, in the next year, where, what neighbor could you invite over to dinner between now and the end of the year to begin to show them the gospel life? Who, who knew in your life is God leading you to and pointing you to for the sake of the proclamation of the gospel? What teammate does your child or your grandchild have in a rec league or on a ball team that they could cultivate a friendship and invite them into an Awana program at a Sunday school. What, who is it that God is leading you to? Because that's where Jesus is. That's where fullness and hope and joy is. It's on mission. That's, when we get sad and pouty as Christians, I guarantee you, you're not on mission. You can't help but have the joy of the Lord when you're, when you're putting yourself out there in a context that requires the Spirit of God to empower you for the proclamation of the Gospel of God. Say, well, I'm just kind of kind of stuck. Ask God to show you somebody and then pursue them with the grace of the gospel of Christ and see what God does in your life. Aiken summarizes prayer and preaching are a one-two punch that cannot be defeated. This is how the kingdom marches on anywhere and anytime. Prayer and proclamation. Prayer and proclamation. Prayer and proclamation. Finally, we must expect Jesus to cleanse those who humbly ask Him for cleansing. What what are we praying for? What are we preaching for? What are we hoping for? This is is what Mark gives us. Jesus has said, I'm not going to go back and do just a bunch of Miracles, I'm going to do a particular sort of healing. And he gives us the healing of a leper, which is a metaphor or a picture for the sort of healing business that Jesus is in in the first place. It's a picture of the sort of transformation that Jesus makes on the inside by showing us leprosy and its transformation on the outside. Mark tells us, of a leper who comes to Jesus for the cleansing of his leprosy. And leprosy is a disease that is like sin. And sin is the center of the target that Jesus intends to hit with the proclamation of the Gospel. As Aiken writes, other illnesses could be healed, but leprosy had to be both healed and cleansed. Leprosy has been called a type of living death. The Jewish historian Josephus said a leper was in no way different from a living corpse. Because leprosy was so deadly. We read these words in Leviticus chapter 13. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Meaning outside the congregation of the people of God. Leprosy was a, a disgusting, nasty, terrible disease that slowly overtook the skin and the body. The infection was on the inside and the results manifested on the outside. It was highly contagious. And the only thing that you could say is this person is unclean. They can't be a part of the people of God lest they corrupt all the people of God. So they're thrown outside the camp. And this is a picture of sin. In Leviticus 13, we see that leprosy is contagious, so too is sin. Like leprosy, sin contaminates us, it makes us unclean, unfit to be united with God. Like leprosy, sin defiles us and it separates us from the people of God. Like leprosy, sin makes a person into a corpse that is only fit for the fire. Like leprosy, sin is more than a disease on the surface of our lives, but a disease that is in us and that overtakes us. You see, in Jesus' day, lepers were required to stand at least 50 paces away from anyone else other than another leper. But this leper risks everything. He breaks the law and he breaks custom on the chance that he might be healed and restored by Jesus. And as we consider the Lord's Supper this morning, as we consider the fact that Jesus allowed His body to be broken, that we might be healed from the inside out, I want to remind you of the picture, the picture of the leper and how he comes to Jesus. He comes humbly and with great faith. He's beseeching Jesus and he falls at Jesus' feet with every step that he takes. He asks to be cleansed. And when he reaches Jesus, he falls down and he makes a statement of great faith. Jesus, if you should desire to do it, you are able to cleanse me. What a picture of what it looks like to come to Jesus. When you really understand the depths and the corrupting power of your sin and the alienation, the separation that it produces between a holy God and a sinful man, then you really don't care how you look when you come to Jesus. You don't care where you've been, you don't care what you've done. You don't care what you have or you don't have. You don't care what other people might think of you anymore. You just need to get to Jesus. Because if He's willing, He can make me clean. And guess what? He is willing. Jesus is moved with compassion. Early translations even say that He's moved with anger. You say, well, what do you mean Jesus is angry? Well, if He's angry, He's only angry over what sin has done to humanity. He's angry over the fact that sin has ruined our opportunity to have right relationship with God. So whether He's moved viscerally by His deep compassion... For sinners, or whether He's moved viscerally by His great anger over what sin has done, Jesus moves with compassion. He moves in His anger against sin. And He reaches out to touch and to cleanse. And He declares that He is willing to cleanse any who come in humility and faith. As Edwards writes, Jesus turns to him, indeed He touches him bringing himself into full contact with physical and ritual untouchability. Listen to this. The contagious holiness of Jesus is more powerful than the contagious corruption of sin. No one can touch the leper and remain clean, but Jesus can, and He does. He is willing to cleanse all who humbly ask for His cleansing in faith. Notice that He then sends this leper "...to the priest as a testimony to them." This is according to the law that we find all the way back in Leviticus 14, that only God could heal the leper, and if God heals the leper, the priest had to declare that the unclean had become clean. And when they were doing that, they're saying, God has done a miracle in this life. And as a testimony to the priests who were rejecting and would reject Jesus, the high priest, when they see the leper and they say, yep, he's clean, they are inadvertently, unwittingly saying, Jesus is God, because Jesus has just done the work of God. Unfortunately, we're not even sure if the leper makes it. Because he disobeys the command of Jesus and, you know... We can forgive him, right? I mean, he's pretty excited and he goes and tells people. But he, he should have obeyed Jesus, but he doesn't obey Jesus. And we can get hung up on that little detail of the leper's disobedience. But that's actually not why Mark tells us about the disobedience of the leper. He tells us about the disobedience of the leper because Jesus heals him anyway. Jesus knows that he's still going to be sinful and God comes and he brings him salvation. And look what happens to the leper and to Jesus. Does anybody remember the show Trading Spaces? I think the last TV show I ever watched was the last episode of Trading Spaces. TV's gone downhill since 2011. But anyway, each two families, neighbors, get $1,000 a piece. And the $1,000 is to redo a room in one house and the other house. And the neighbors swap and do the redo. And sometimes... The neighbors are so thoughtful, they take the $1,000 and the room that the neighbors ask them to do, they do a great job. It's consistent with the decor of the house. It looks really trendy and nice. And other times, they get this wild hair crazy idea and then they swap back and one neighbor is really, really satisfied and excited about their new room and the other neighbor is like, I'm going to have to spend $5,000 to to redo what you just messed up with the $1,000. Jesus and the leper have traded places. You notice where Jesus is at the end of our text in verse 45. He's on the outside in a lonely and desolate place. The leper is on the inside with family and friends. Here's what Mark is preparing for us to understand as we continue in his Gospel. Leprosy can be cleansed by Jesus, but sin must not only be cleansed, it must be paid for. The only way for there to be cleansing from the deepest uncleanness of our hearts is for Jesus to take our place. And He would take our place on an old rugged cross, giving His life so that those who are outsiders declared unclean, separated from the grace and the favorable presence of God might forever know what it is like to be united and called a child of God. So as the deacons prepare to serve the Lord's Supper this morning, that is our hope. We have a King who came to take our place. He is the King that we pray others would know He is the king we proclaim with our lips. And he is the king who took our place. We're going to pray and then our deacons will come and serve the supper. Would you bow with me? Our Father and our God, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you that you bore our sin and that you took our place. that you conquered death and you defeated the grave. Help us, God, as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper to do so in a not in an unworthy manner. God that we would not partake in the Lord's Supper flippantly or callously. God that we would truly examine ourselves as you call us to do and that we would see if there be any wrong way within us. And if there is, God, that we would come to You and that we would say, God, change us by Your Gospel. Motivate us through the indwelling presence of Your Holy Spirit to to live lives that bring glory and honor to Jesus, our King, who came and took our place. That's our hope, God. We don't have any other hope but the Gospel. We thank You that it's a sure hope. In Jesus' name, amen.